0: We're going to continue a series uh, in the life of David in the Old Testament, and we're going to be reading uh, from chapter 19 of the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, why don't you get those out, uh, and the words are going to appear on the screen. Uh, And In this chapter, we are reaching a significant point in David's life. And prior to this, we've seen the emergence of David as As a man, as a a leader, as a warrior, um, and as a man of God. And we've also seen Saul, who uh, is the current king of Israel, becoming increasingly jealous uh, of David and his military successes. Uh, And in the last chapter, we saw the peculiarities of the relationship between David and Saul in that even though Saul hates David, he offered his youngest daughter in marriage to her, which does make you think, what is up with Saul? Um, and it seems that Saul's method really is to keep his friends close, but his enemies even closer. He, he literally lives that out. Um, and as we get into chapter 19, the heat between these two men is turned up. It's definitely turned up. And the tensions that existed between Saul and and David start to become more public and more extreme. And so to help us, and you'll see why I do this in a minute, is that we're going to break this passage up into three uh, because it's a strange chapter of the Bible. Uh, And so it's better to take it bit by bit. So we're going to read a little bit, talk about it, read a bit more, talk about it, and so on. Uh, And then we're going to see what is God doing in the life of David and Saul and Jonathan and how does it fit in and how does it apply to our lives. So we're going to start with section 1 in chapter 19, reading uh, verses 1 to 7. And so I'm reading from the ESV and the words are going to come up here on the screen. Chapter uh, chapter 19, verse 1, and Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David and Jonathan told David, Saul my father seeks to kill you. Therefore be on your guard in the morning, stay in a secret place and hide yourself and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are and I will speak to my father about you and if I learn anything I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine's Goliath. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. This chapter starts in verse 1 with one of those top secret, west wing style executive board meetings that always happen underground bunkers with massive tables and loads of maps and he gathers his assistants and his servants and his son and he says the mission is to kill David. And in that moment the narrative changes. In that one meeting everyone in that room is clear about what is going to happen. It's a big moment because Up until now, it may not have been overtly obvious that Saul even hated David, particularly. He'd never really verbalized it. There were some actions that he did in previous chapters. There was some growing tension between them. But to be honest, Saul was a pretty unpredictable, temperamental character. And so anything, any kind of tension in previous chapters... Well, people would have just around him would have said, well, that's just Saul. He doesn't like people. He, he doesn't really get on with people. He, and David is just one of those people that he doesn't really like. And if not to compound the issue, then he offers his youngest daughter in marriage, which probably for other people around him is like, well, that dissolves any kind of rumor perhaps that Saul really has a personal vendetta against David. And so when he gathers everyone together and says, want to kill David it's a huge moment he has verbalized his intentions for the first time what was secret his murderous envy deep inside him is now out in the open it's public and it's a significant turning point right at the beginning of this chapter And so we see a change in Saul's approach. He lets the cat out of the bag. He verbalizes his hatred for David and his kingly wish to end David's life. And his murderous desires are now known by his inner circle. And they put a plan together to wipe David out. But what's particularly interesting and noteworthy in those seven verses is the role that Jonathan plays in the story. His intervention is amazing. This is Saul's own son, Jonathan. And what does he do in these opening verses? Well, he, he comes to his father. He comes to his own murderous father and tries to talk him down from this position that Saul has put himself in. That's a brave move, isn't it? That is a brave move to go to the king of Israel who happens to be your dad, and say, have you really thought about this? And just look at how he does this. The the conversation's interesting. Look how he does it. He starts with a warning. He starts with a warning because he compares what Saul's intentions are with sin. In fact, he he does it three times. If you look at the passage, he does it three times. He says, uh, let not the king sin against his servant David and then he says it again for he hasn't sinned against you and then the, the really hard-hitting question why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause and Jonathan is, is giving a stern warning that it's not just murder in and of itself which is bad enough but he's breaking God's law He's appealing to Saul and saying, you are breaking God's law. He's using the language of Deuteronomy about innocent blood and and what the consequences of that would be. And he's saying, you are sinning against God. Just imagine what that's like to say that to a parent. Maybe you have done that. It's a huge moment for Jonathan. And he comes in with this warning. You are sinning against God. David is innocent. But then he kind of changes tact. So he goes in hard, and then he changes tact. He he draws out some of the good that Saul has said in the past. He actually uses Saul's own words back at him. So back in chapter 11, when Saul successfully defeats the Ammonites, a foreign power who were attacking Israel at the time, The people called for those who had doubted Saul in the first place to be killed. And actually Saul responds to those people and he says, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Those are Saul's words. Today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And yet in verse 5, if you look at it with me, Jonathan uses those same words What does he say? He says, for he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. Jonathan's trying to speak sense to his father, using his own words and saying, that was a brilliant thing to say. That was good. How have you lost your way so much since then? So he goes in hard, he goes in with the warning, the stern challenge, but then he tries to draw out the good in what Saul is saying, he's appealing to him and saying, how have you lost your way so much? In fact, he's trying to lead him to a place of repentance, his own father to repentance. And what's striking about Jonathan's intervention here in this first section is his If you think about it, it's an incredibly stressful, highly pressured, vulnerable position that Jonathan has placed himself in. That cannot have been easy for Jonathan. We see Jonathan siding with his best friend against his father, the king of Israel. And you've got to wonder, well, how do do you go about doing something like that? How do you go about facing your murderous dad to try and talk him down? How do you come with the stern warning, but also drawing out the good and appealing in that way? And it's clear from when you read about Jonathan that he is drawing strength from a higher power in these moments. In this incredibly difficult Situation, and rather than just going with the flow and not trying to rock the family boat too much he takes it incredibly seriously and he stands for what is right some people do have difficult family histories some people do have challenging relationships with family particularly and you don't have to just resign yourself to how things have always been you know, when I was a teacher, uh, we'd, I'd sit down um, at parents' evening, and parents would literally sit down and say, the reason my son is rubbish at history is because I am. And you're like, that makes no sense whatsoever. I, but you'd hear it all the time, or, or, or she's rubbish at mass because I'm rubbish at maths. Like, and, and the child is sitting right there. You know, There are challenging relationships, challenging family dynamics, and you don't have to resign yourself to just go with the flow and just assume that that's the way you are because your parents were like that. Jonathan certainly doesn't. He stands, he challenges, but he also comes in grace, drawing good from what Saul has done. And he shows real wisdom and discernment, doesn't he? You know, Discernment is the lost art of the day. I think, because we're fed so much information that we, we never have time to even think about what we're consuming and what we're feeding ourselves. It's just on to the next thing all the time. You never get a chance to even consider, you know, what am I watching? It's just the next episode is coming straight away. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things, and yeah, Jonathan shows incredible wisdom to know what to do. He doesn't just flip a lid at Saul. He doesn't just lose it on him he goes in hard with the challenge but then he brings grace into it and tries to bring him to a place of repentance gently and we can so often respond to things that we don't like or things that don't go our way and we can get really angry about it and then we just let it loose on someone and before we know it we've we've already created tension haven't we and challenges in relationships and we see in Jonathan that he uses wisdom and discernment to navigate through this. And so the question that we should ask ourselves is you know, how aware are you of the situation that you're in? Jonathan was hyper-aware. He was incredibly self-aware about how he was coming across. How aware are you of that? How aware are you of the influences in your life? Are you being dominated by how you've been brought up, for instance? Is the voice of a parent just ringing in your ears all the time? How do you respond to things when things don't seem to go your way? Or turn it on its head, perhaps you feel like you're in a position like Jonathan where there is a strange relationship and you need to go and try and sort it out and face up to it and bring the challenge. Maybe even it's to a family member. How are you going to do that? And Jonathan provides a model for that. He he draws from God, he uses wisdom and discernment to approach his own father and to challenge him and to face up to it, but also to be gracious in it. I think there's a lot for us to learn from this exchange. And in the short term, Jonathan is successful. You know, Saul makes this grand statement, I won't lay a finger on him. And so momentarily, Jonathan's interaction and reconciliation seems to have worked to some extent. But then we pick up the story in verse 8. Let's have a look at it. Verse 8. And there was war again. There's always war. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them. Just remember that word struck. Struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, or the harp, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Here's the interesting bit coming up. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image or an idol, Okay, he took an, angel, uh, an image or an idol, And laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at his head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. And then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the idol was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at his head. And Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me and let my enemy go so that he has escaped and Michal answered Saul he said to me let me go why should I kill you all right (laughs) cheers for this chapter Andy David's successes in military battle once again brings about Saul's hatred towards David to the so much extent that he launches a spear at him And because David is twinkle-toes, he manages to elude it. But the thing that the writer is drawing our attention to is Saul's attitude towards David now. And the writer uses these words, struck, really deliberately. It's actually not in the NIV, it's in the ASV, and it's deliberate. See, he uses the word struck when David struck the Philistines with a mighty blow. The Philistines being the number one enemy of the Israelites. David leading the Israelite army into battle and he struck them with a mighty blow. And then the writer uses that same word to describe what Saul tries to do to David. And he flings the spear and the spear struck the wall. And so we see again that Saul has made David his number one enemy. It's happened again. And it's worth noting that Saul responds in anger to David's good deeds. And David is this kind of person that seems to draw out two different reactions. Some people love him and some people hate him. And there doesn't seem to be much middle ground. So Jonathan and Mika, brother and sister, son and daughter of Saul, love David. David, they will do anything, even if it takes putting an idol in a bed and putting goat's hair on him, they will do anything to save him. And yet Saul is consumed by murderous envy. And there's this common theme right the way through the Bible where God's anointed people often are either loved or hated. I don't know if you've noticed that. So Moses is hated by Pharaoh or Daniel Hated. Joseph, in fact, hated by his own brothers. And I guess we see it most clearly with Jesus, don't we? When we read the Gospels, the disciples loved him. And yet the political authority and religious leaders hated him, wanted to put an end to him because of what Jesus represented. These characters seem to draw out two different reactions. And for David, it's even more strange because it's, it's an internal opposition, isn't it? Saul and David are technically on the same side, and yet Saul wants to kill him. It's funny, isn't it, because Judas was a disciple in Jesus' inner circle and yet Judas goes and betrays Jesus. Interesting parallel. And so there's this opposition that David faces because of the good things that we do and that he does and and actually we, we should expect some of that ourselves. When we live for Jesus and when we speak for Jesus, not everyone is gonna fling open the doors and welcome you in. You know, some people are drawn by the light of Jesus and they step closer. I'm sure you know people who just want to talk to you about it, are just really open and, and are happy to talk about it and so they're drawn by the light of Jesus but actually others will choose to go further into the darkness. That's often what Jesus is like, that's, how, that's the reaction that Jesus gets and we should expect opposition when we live and speak for Jesus. It's not going to go down well with Everyone. And we should be ready for that. We should expect that. We shouldn't shy away from that. And the final thing that we see here, and I was just thinking, you know, Saul is the king of Israel and should really be fighting. He's supposed to be on the front line, supposed to be representing Israel, taking the charge, and yet he's found in his own residency... Dealing with the internal war that is within him. And I think that's significant because bitterness has taken hold of him, which has meant that he's not able to fulfill what he's supposed to be doing, what God has called him to do. And bitterness is one of those things that can just be small to begin with, but if it's not nipped in the bud, it can grow. I actually, I, I, Sarah was going to, the, my wife Sarah was going to the 9 a.m. service this morning and I helped her get the pram down the stairs. I went out in barefoot and I trod on some glass this morning and when you're a tall man with not very much flexibility and it, there's a little shard of glass in your big toe, that's incredibly difficult to reach. I've got the flexibility of a scaffolding board and uh, I'm there on the bathroom just trying to like get this thing out but I needed to get it out because if I didn't, I could get infected the pain would get be- more and more. And bitterness is a little bit like that. If you don't nip it in the bud, if you don't deal with it, it's going to fester. And so some, some of us, and I know I have, have allowed bitterness to take root towards other people or to situations or even to God. And it's prevented me from what I'm supposed to be doing. It's taken me off the front line. Dealing with the internal war. Is that you this morning? Are you dealing with bitterness towards somebody? We're going to have a, an opportunity to respond a little bit later. And I want to encourage you, if that is you, that God can do something with that. He can take it away. You know, bitterness only damages the person that is bitter. It doesn't do anything for anyone else. It just affects You. And so perhaps God is speaking to you about forgiveness and letting some of that go and walking in freedom. And we see that in Saul, that he just couldn't deal with it. And so what does Saul do? Well, after the, after the spear and the idols and the goat's hair, and you, I'm happy to talk about why on earth Mekah had an idol in her house, and, you know, but it's not the focus of the story. Um, I'm happy to talk about it later. Maybe you've got some ideas. Uh, but David flees. Out the window, off he goes. And he goes and chases and he finds Samuel. And so we're going to pick up the story in verse 18. And it says, Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth, and it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they all prophesied. When it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers a third time, and they also prophesied. And then he himself Saul's like, dang it, what is wrong with these soldiers? I'm going myself, and went to Ramah, and came to the great well that is in Sekka. and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah, and he went there, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Well, if you thought goat's hair and idols were strange, this is even weirder. Uh, So here we go. (laughs) Saul sends soldiers three times to go and arrest David. And what happens to them each time? The Spirit of God comes and they begin to worship God. It's so strange. And so Saul decides, right, I'm gonna take matter into my own hands here, and I'm gonna deal with it myself. And lo and behold, the Spirit of God comes again. And, and you know, you'd be forgiven. You know, the readers at the time, or you know, readers past would have thought, Okay, well, God has protected David through a person, Jonathan, first of all, in a conversation with his father. He's then used Michal and some goat's hair to rescue David again through a window. And so you think, well, David's running to Samuel, so Samuel's going to conjure something up again for David to escape. And yet, it gets to a point where God has to come himself. God has to come himself. And so... Saul comes under the power of the Spirit, and it's confounding. It's a bizarre method of rescue. God Himself, by His Spirit, overwhelms Saul to the point that Saul is laid bare on the floor. He probably was wearing something, but He had taken his robes off. He was wearing his Calvin Klein's or something. And uh, He's laid bare on the floor. What's going on? I think there's two things. In one sense, Saul is being humbled in a huge way. In fact, it's a huge theme throughout this whole passage that we're reading through. This series about humility is a significant thing. And Saul is humbled because he thinks he can do it on his own. He thinks, I'm the king of Israel. I'm going to sort this out. But when you come against the God Almighty, you cannot touch God's anointed You can't touch him. Saul couldn't get anywhere close. He's completely overpowered by God, and there's this visual representation of Saul's decline. His robes come off, royal robes stripped off, and he's laid naked on the floor, bare on the floor. He's been humbled. He's worshiping God, and he's being humbled, laid exposed on the ground but could it be that there is something else going on here too because he's not just being humbled is he it says that he is worshipping God that word prophesying really means praise or or worshipping and he's worshipping God in fact all his messengers are worshipping God and could it be that there's something else going on here in this scene and could it be that this is a moment of utterly scandalous grace towards Saul? Could it be? I, I think it can I can't get past the fact that Saul is worshipping God. He's been humbled and he's worshipping God all day and all night. And the Spirit comes on him and allows him to do that. Could it be that this is utterly Scandalous, outrageous grace on behalf of God towards a man who has murderous envy in his heart. In fact, in this, there's this potentially provision or a potential provision of opportunity to repent in this moment. In worship, Saul could have easily chosen, Do you know what, God is doing something here, I'm laid naked on the floor. Is God trying to tell me something here? There's an opportunity of repentance and we see a demonstration of grace and, you know, we can look at this and we can say, well, wasn't Saul incredibly fortunate to even have the opportunity? Isn't Saul a lucky man that God would be so gracious to him? Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. says this, But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions and in our sin. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved sitting here today. It's by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The scandal is, of grace is not just reserved for Saul. We receive grace too. We were dead and gone in our sin. That's how the Bible describes it. In our envy, in our pride, in our jealousy, when things don't go our way and we lash out, the Bible says that's dead in your sin. You're living for yourself. You want your own way. With pride, with jealousy. And so what would it take for us to be rescued from ourselves in our sin, once again it would take God to come himself. It would take God to come himself. God in human flesh came in a demonstration of unmerited, outrageous, scandalous grace. In fact, it's such a scandal because the king of heaven came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and he himself was hunted. He himself was humiliated. He himself was mocked. In fact, he himself was stripped naked, derobed, a crown of thorns mockingly put on his head, a sign on the cross saying, King of the Jews, as if it was some kind of joke. And he did it so that he would take the punishment that we that should have came to us, and it passes over us, and it falls on Jesus, the Son of God, the King of heaven, in our place, and in our place, in place of death, we receive life, in place of sin, we don't just receive forgiveness, so that we're kind of back to some kind of neutral standing, that's not good news, is it? good news is the fact that we've actually been seated in heavenly realms and we get to wear robes of righteousness. The robes that were taken off Jesus have been put on us. That is the gospel. It's not just this neutral standing where we get from minus 10 up to zero and we just kind of exist. The scandal of the gospel is that you are now princes and princesses in God's kingdom. And it's a, bit, it's a bit like cheesy language, isn't it? But that is the reality of it. In place of uncertainty, instability, vulnerability, we receive God's protection. In Christ Jesus, when he died, and he rose again and defeated death, and rose to heaven, and he is seated on his throne. And all those who put their faith in him will one day be seated with him. It is a scandal, friends. It is a scandal that we can say such things. And something in the story of Saul here is this scandal of grace towards him. It might have only lasted two days, but it's still grace. God did not have to do it. He could have smited him off the face of the earth if he wanted to. But in those two days, he worships God. And so I want to lead us in a response. I'm going to invite the band to come back. And there's a few different things that I want to lead us through. But perhaps you're here for the first time, or perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're just working things out. Maybe you've been here a few times. And the invitation here is that you can receive grace from Jesus for the first time this morning. the gospel is that there is no sin that can take you far enough away from God for him to bring you back. He can do it in an instant. And if you wanna make that step this morning and receive his grace, it is the best decision you will ever make. And there's almost 200 people here that would testify to that. Some other things, though, isn't there? In that first section, perhaps you're dealing with family dynamics. There's some challenges in your family. And you know you need to face up to them and start to deal with some of that. Or perhaps it's relationship issues. You can learn something from Jonathan in bringing the challenge, but also coming in with grace. But that creates a bit of a pit in your stomach because you know you need to deal with something. And there's grace for you this morning. And God is saying, there's a high, I, I am in control. I can help you through this. Or perhaps there's bitterness in your heart. And you just can't get past it. It's stopping you from doing what God is calling you to do. And you just need to nip it in the bud. Again, you can receive his grace to help you through that. To experience freedom. Or finally... Perhaps you just need a fresh revelation of who God is. There's something in that in story where you just needed a fresh revelation. And although it was momentary, he worshipped God. And perhaps you feel too far away from God, you feel dry. I encourage you to come and experience God's fresh grace for you this morning.